Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Donna Speed. Donna is the Chief Executive of We The Curious, an educational charity with a hands-on science centre which aims to remove boundaries around science connecting art, people and ideas in a united culture of curiosity. Donna, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation Mm -hmm. for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? So I think for me, leadership is uh, providing clarity and and providing a vision of where you want to get to and then um, breaking that down into into goals on how you're going to get there. And so really, it's it's quite a lot of storytelling just in terms of making sure that you're all trying to focus on, on what success looks like and then that you can lead people through that journey. And if we think about your own personal leadership style when it comes to working with colleagues, um, how would you describe that? I would say um, that my colleagues would describe me as enthusiastic. Um, And I think uh, the reason I am so enthusiastic about We The Curious uh, is because when I first joined, which was 20 years ago, um, we should be celebrating our 20th anniversary in July, Mm. but um, the world has shifted a little bit. Um, But when I first started, I think it's fair to say um, that I didn't think that science was for me. I was I was very much joining the organisation from a venue and an attraction perspective. Um, when I was at school, actually, I, I felt that um, science was a bit too hard. I didn't know the answers. And, and certainly at that time, you kind of put your hand up if you knew the answers uh, rather than if you had questions. And I just seemed to have quite a lot of questions. So for me, joining the organisation was really liberating and it, and it introduced me to the science that I know today, the kind of the thing that surrounds us in our world and kind of makes sense of the world. And so my purpose and, and what We The Curious did for me in terms of introducing me to, the, to, to science um, really is what um, defines my leadership and, and it helps me um, get up in the morning and kind of be excited about going to work. And so I think I'm incredibly lucky uh, within the organization that it does attract people who are purpose driven, people who are there because they want to be, because they believe in what we're trying to achieve. Um, and so, so actually it makes leading quite, quite a joy and quite easy because we're all kind of pushing in the right direction. That's incredibly um, encouraging. And I think it's also uh, fantastic news to hear that it is the 20th anniversary of the organisation as well. So I suppose a huge congratulations is in order for that. And it's a shame that it's not taking place in more fortuitous circumstances, for sure, with the emergence of COVID-19 causing so many issues for businesses and organisations up and down the country. Um, If we focus on that um, for a moment then, uh, Donna, I mean, I'm interested to know how you found it adapting to this uh, current situation, because I can imagine it's posed some incredible challenges for the likes of yourselves as well. Absolutely. I mean, us and all of the 40 science centres across the UK. Um, for us personally, we are in the middle of re, uh, reimagining our whole ground floor exhibition. So we've got a, 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 an exhibition launching in November um, called Project What If. And so we can't press pause on that, actually. So we have a team dedicated to redeveloping our ground floor and they're working tirelessly day in, day out. 
Um, and so they've all had to adapt incredibly quickly to working from home, uh, to working with uh, partners overseas and, and local partners um, in just a, in a very agile and, and quick way. Um, so I think that, you know, there, there is, in a lot of ways, there's been huge change for us. We, we can no longer open our venue. We can no longer welcome the 300,000 visitors we have a year. So we've had to shift everything online because those uh, relationships are important. Our strategic partners, our visitors, uh, our communities. So we've, we continue to do that. Um, but with, you know, majority of our organization on furlough um, because we are an educational charity. We've had to, you know, we don't hold big reserves. So actually there's, there's a whole threat for science centers across the UK at a time where science is so incredibly important and it's in our everyday conversation and how we tackle COVID. Um, actually, the, the science centers are, are at risk. So, so we are having to whistle everything down to focus on what we can do so that we can then reopen and and be um, be there in the future. It's going to be a very interesting time, isn't it, for science centres um, all over the uh, the country? And it's good that their plight has been highlighted to the uh, the government because support already has been quite extensive um, across business and across various sectors. But it's going to be needed on a more ongoing basis, probably even after the furlough scheme ends, isn't it, just to keep things ticking over and give organisations the opportunity to survive into the future. Absolutely. I mean, the furlough scheme was incredibly supportive, incredibly helpful and has supported kind of the, the longevity. Um, but at the end of that, then we find ourselves in quite a crisis um, because costs have continued. You know, we're not the only science centre that has a capital project to deliver. Um, so the mm. costs are still are still going out. Um, but the, the furlough has been really helpful. Uh, but we do need more. And, and as you say, there's, there's a, a, a great... Um, campaign science centers for our future that has been launched and, and has been really supported so we do hope that uh, we get more support from the government as we're not um, centrally government funded and we are independent charities to see us through this difficult time um, over the COVID crisis. And I can imagine that as a leader of an organization as well a lot of people have been looking to you to try and provide some reassurance for the future and that can sometimes come with a lot of pressure given that there is a great deal of uncertainty information coming through isn't always clear and so keeping the yeah. communication channels open and having those sorts of discussions can also pose a challenge in and of themselves and considering that mental health and well-being is something that's really been thrust into the limelight during this time as well i think that side of people management becomes all the more important doesn't it it really does. And, and so we already have um, quite a lot of support and kind of focus on, on the um, mental health and well-being of our, of our individuals and our organisation. Uh, but actually, there's a real responsibility not to overpromise because that's mm. not fair. And so it, it's a natural thing you want to do is provide comfort and reassurance. But actually, in a time where, where there is so many unknowns, you can just tell the truth and you can just tell it as transparently and, and as quickly as you can um, so that people know where they stand. Um, and, and I think that actually investing in mental health and well-being um, is, is really important during this time because lives have been turned upside down. And so at work, if you are able to access some support, whether it be mental health first aiders or some um, third party that, you know, people can go to, to to get that support. I think that's really important. It's something we've certainly prioritised as an organisation. And that's fantastic to uh, to hear as well. Do you think that those that have 
essentially been furloughed or those that have continued to work during this time have taken quite well to what's happened um do you, or has it been a little bit more of a challenge trying to manage that I think it has been more of a challenge because it's so complex, isn't it? So you've got some people who would love to work, but they're not able to. And even that is contributing to the organisation because we're able to to um, to benefit from the, the job retention scheme. Mm. Um, but that when somebody cares and they want to help progress that charitable aim, that can be quite difficult. Um, and also work provides a structure and uh, socialising. And so, it, you know, it, it, it is a lot to take just to furlough. Um, it, you know, I think that the, the risk is that people think people are just reading, reading in the sunshine. Um, but actually, I think it is quite a challenge for people to be furloughed. Um, on mm. the flip side, it's a challenge to, to try and work um, during this time when quite often you're taking on three or four jobs um, to try and and you're you're perhaps changing your job role to to, be, to adapt to the situation. Um, so I think there's not a there's not an easy route actually, and and, and people will um, will adapt and and strong communication is really key to make sure that you're constantly mm. reassuring people to do what they can. But actually, whatever you're doing, whether it's you're on fur- whether you're on furlough or whether you're working, you are contributing. You are helping the organisation to succeed and to see us through this crisis but it, it is complex I think it is difficult because there's there's kind of a and there's an overworked element and there's a um there's a guilt complex element so it's um there's not a, an easy side unfortunately I would absolutely um, agree with that uh, for sure Donna and um Considering that we've talked about the importance of openness and transparency from a business or organisation leader's perspective, it brings us on to the fact that there's been a great deal of debate about that from the government's leadership, hasn't there, about guidelines maybe not being clear enough. Considering that, of course, we're now looking at COVID secure guidelines to allow premises to reopen in future, are you satisfied that you know going forward what is expected of you to begin to sort of go back towards operating normally again? As, as an indoor interactive centre, I think we're going to be one of the very last people to open. Um, so there is there is learning, I think, on on practical um, examples of when people reopen before us more than the guidelines themselves. I think the guidelines, they can't be so comprehensive that they spell everything out for you. Um, so there is an element of, of just understanding what works well and what, what needs to be improved. Um, I think that the the guidelines are um, are okay, but actually there's you know it's, there's a lot of interpretation. So we do need to make sure that we're we're taking information from from everywhere, and including the government guidelines. Um, but I think a lot of the information will be how people have tried to ap- apply those and how well they've worked. And unfortunately, that's the benefit of of being one of the last to reopen is that we will be able to to glean that information. Um, and hopefully the guidelines won't change too much because that's one of the, the key risks is that something comes out. Um, and then because things keep changing and shifting, uh, it gets lost in translation and things become a bit vague. And therefore you, you miss, you know, you miss something. And, and safety is so paramount in this. You do need to make sure that we, we are all keeping our staff, our visitors, our volunteers safe. Um, so we do need to have a very, very sharp handle on these guidelines. Um, and, and frankly, they're not quite as clear as I would like. So I think that we'd have to lean on um, other people's interpretation of them and experience uh, to inform our own plans. 
And if we now think about what the future does hold over the course of the next year for yourself and for you, the curious, what do you envision and what do you hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic, start to see things reopen again and then adjust to this new normal? Yes, and I think that science has... um has you know it's been in the headlines every day it's, you know we've, we haven't talked about science as much as we are at the moment um and and so i think there is an opportunity for us to for all of the science centers across the uk that the regional hubs i mean everyone has a local science center uh, to play a really key role in helping for future challenges so it's not just going to be things like covid but the climate emergency uh, issues that will, will be raised as well like the science centers are so well positioned to help people understand and crucially have a conversation around how people can get engaged um, and involved in the science um, that will help find these solutions. Um, so I think my hope and my ambitions for the future, and you know, if I if I think about as in a year's time, I would hope that we have a stronger voice um, across our network to to help the government come out of um, these crises, these crises, and. And just that we are a voice for people. Um, and so I think the hope is, is grand. Uh, I think we've got ambition, you know, for our organisation to be a key um, community resource and, and that we are vital um, in, in coming out of this crisis. Let's certainly hope that that's the uh, the case uh, for sure. We are just about out of time on the uh, the program today, um, unfortunately, Donna. But you know, I think given how informative and insightful it's been discussing some of these issues with you today, I think it would be fantastic, both for myself and from a listener's perspective, to actually catch up in future and have you back on the air with us just to see what exactly has changed in the time before and understand how science centres on the whole, including We the Curious, are getting on as we move through into the next stages of this uh, current situation. I'd love that, Scott. Yes, thank you. Let's definitely do that. I think it would be incredibly informative, um, as I say, because it's all well and good speculating as to what the future might bring. But it is something entirely different to then look at what exactly has happened and have a retrospective look at what we've said and maybe reassess from there. Um, I've got to say, Donna, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us today to share some of these issues with us. So I thank you again for taking the time to join us. And most importantly, until we do speak in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. Not yet. Thank you, Scott. We really appreciate your time. That was Donna Speed speaking, the Chief Executive of We The Curious. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, including Education Secretary, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage 
obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well.
How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.